dive into the passage this morning, the first line of the song forces us to rethink our categories and how we view the world. Think about this. What picture comes into your mind when you hear the phrase dwelling place? Because I imagine most of you think about your home as your dwelling place, that actually right now you're sitting in your dwelling place as you listen to the sermon. And of course, you're absolutely right in thinking about that. That is absolutely true. And yet what Moses is saying at the start of this song is that if we think about our home as our primary dwelling place, then we're actually making a huge mistake. In the wake of this pandemic, so many businesses are quickly rebranding, right? They're trying to change their messaging and contextualize in the time and in the place we find ourselves in. And one particular company that's released a new commercial is Raymore and Flanagan, the commercial and furniture store. And they, in the commercial, they show families gathering around the table and couples laying in bed. And, and then they have this catchphrase, your home is your haven, right? And when I saw this commercial, I stopped and I thought about it. And I was like... <laughs> No way, my home is not my sanctuary. I thought to myself, have you been to my home in the last three or four weeks? My home is a disaster zone. My home is a prison right now. And you don't have to have little kids running around your house to feel that way. My parents right now are living in New Jersey. They are without children and they still feel um, as if they're in prison. Um, Moses knew this as well as a man who didn't have a home. Remember, this song is being written in the context of God's people waiting on the border of the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years without a home. And add to that reality the fact that due to Moses' sin against God, he's not actually going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. He's going to actually die before he can settle into the place that God promised him. Yet Moses knows that his ultimate dwelling place is not the promised land. It's the promised one. And we see that play throughout Moses' life, right? When the people of God are sinning, right? And God grows angry at them. God says he's not going to go up with them. And time and time again, right? When Mo God speaks this way, Moses pleads with God, knowing that if God were to leave him, no land, no food, no experience could ever possibly replace the presence of God in his life. To be without God is to be hopeless to truly be alone. And our psalm this morning reminds us that our primary dwelling place is not a place, it's a person. This past week, a picture popped up on my Facebook feed from six years ago, and it was a picture of Courtney in New York City, pregnant with Merwin. And I took this particular picture in the same spot where I first asked her out on a date and where I proposed to her when I wanted to get married to her. And whenever I visit this place, I immediately think of her not the metal railing, not the concrete pa pavement before my feet, not even the view of Randall's Island right across from where we're standing, right? When we have memories of places, aren't people always there? And that's why it's important for us to know and cling to the truth that God is our dwelling place because he is the one constant that will never, ever be taken away from us. He's the secure anchor that we can run to no matter what's going on. And he's the one that's always available to meet with us. 
What does that mean for us right now? Well, one of the most devastating things about this virus that we're battling right now is how it isolates us from one another. I've watched several news stories that have broke my heart of spouses who've brought their husband or wife to the emergency room and have had to leave them as they were admitted for treatment for coronavirus. They've been barred from going in with them. And it's been so hard for me to be far from my brother in New York City and my parents in New Jersey. And I know some of you have parents right now that are sick. And this illness might separate us from one another, but because God is our dwelling place, it can't separate us from him. No matter where we are, God is with us. He is our refuge and our dwelling place. And we know God's always with us because of what Moses says in the next verse. Before the mountains were birthed forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, unlike our current moment, God alone is unchanging and ever present. And in this season, he's reminding us that he alone is the dwelling place that we need. You may be asking, well, how can I experience this truth that God is my dwelling place? How can I know that this is real? Well, he's able to show you that he is with you. And I continue to encourage you in this season to grow in prayer. Even if you're not a praying person, would you consider speaking to God about what's on your heart? Share what you're struggling with. Share your fear. Share your anger. Share whatever emotions you're feeling. Speak about them with God. And would you ask him to make his presence real to you? Another way to experience his presence is in his word. And so would you pray before you read God's word each day for him to speak to you through it? We know that God's word is living and active. And would you pray that he would show you that promise to be true? And lastly, though we're apart, would you lean into our community? Call, text, Zoom, FaceTime, and see how God will give you peace and a sense of his presence as you are with his people who are filled with his spirit. God's giving us the chance to grow in this season in our ability to dwell with him. And if you're not a believer, would you accept God's invitation to dwell in his presence, to turn to him and ask him to open your eyes and draw you near? Moses moves from laying hold of God as his true dwelling place to a powerful comparison between us as created beings in light of our eternal and unchanging God. He says, right, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, right? We, unlike God, are mortal, right? We die. And at the same time, it reminds us why we die. This language points us back to the Garden of Eden and the curse, right, that God put on Adam and Eve. God says to them, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. We return to dust because we live in a world marked by sin, and we ourselves are sinners. In this psalm, right, Moses is preparing his people to enter the promised land. And the fact that a whole generation of Israelites have died because of their rebellion against God makes these words particularly powerful. 
He wants the next generation to reflect on the holiness of God. He wants them to know the reality of their sins, of how much God hates sin, of how short life is. He was calling the people of God to live in obedience to God so they could experience the joy of life and fullness that comes from being with God. And then Moses says, right in verse 8, you have set your iniquities before you, our, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. What things are you discovering about your heart in this season? What things do you find comfort in apart from God? What are all the little idols in your life that are being brought to light? Now, I'm not talking about obvious things, but maybe even little stuff that we believe we're entitled to. Our comfort, a certain amount of recreational time in our day, certain foods on our plates, right? Or even certain freedoms. The writer David Brooks captures this truth in his book, The Second Mountain. He says something amazing about suffering. He says, seasons of suffering are the foghorns that blast us out of our complacency and warn us we're heading for the wrong life. We can suffer our way to wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom you can't learn from books. You have to experience it for yourself. Suffering upsets the normal patterns of life and reminds you that you're not who you thought you were. It smashes through the floor of what you thought was the basement of your soul and reveals a cavity below. And then it smashes through the floor and reveals a cavity below that. Suffering teaches us gratitude. We throw ourselves on others and appreciate the gifts of our loved ones. It puts you in solidarity with others who suffer. Suffering calls for a response. Few people respond to suffering by seeking pleasure. Nobody says, I lost my child and therefore I should go out and party. They say, I lost my child and therefore I'm equipped to help others who've lost their child. Suffering shatters the illusion of self-sufficiency. What is this season teaching you? Who did you think you were that you're beginning to question? What cavities below the basement of your soul are being unearthed? What things have you begun to appreciate more? With groceries no longer in stores, our family has begun to celebrate the surprises. No eggs or milk this week, but we have cheese. We have some meat. Or we don't have eggs this week, but we have chicken. We've so often taken for granted, right? A full fridge for our entire lives, and we're learning deeper gratitude in these weeks. For me, this season has been an extended reminder of the reality of how limited I am in every single way. Every day I see I'm not, forget being a great dad, I'm not even a good dad. I've seen how often I spend money in the past on things that I didn't need, that aren't important. And as hard as it is to accept this, it's actually good to be so fully confronted by the reality of how fragile and vulnerable we truly are. Because without it, we believe we're in control. We believe that with enough hard work and enough sacrifice, we can have the life that we want to have. We believe we're like God, that we're invincible. But if this experience of gaining deeper perspective only leads us to look at ourselves, it actually becomes dangerous because we can be tempted to despair or tempted to give up. So instead of it stopping with us, it has to lead us to turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto God, the one who's not limited, the one who is not of the dust, 
and who will not return to dust because he was before the dust was even made. Just as the suffering of the Israelites was meant to turn their hearts towards God, remember we live in a fallen world to remind us that our whole ultimate hope must be in God. Paul says right to the church in Rome that God has subjected his creation to futility in hope. He permits death and suffering so that we see our sin, we see our need for a savior. So this suffering is meant to lead us to long for the full deliverance that has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. It's not the end of the story. It's a season of reminder for us. Moses in this song writes in verse four, for a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, right? Like a grass that is renewed in the morning. You know, what's interesting about these words is that in the context of the psalm, right, they remind us of the shortness of life and of God's judgment against sin. But the Apostle Peter uses very, very similar language in his letter to the church to remind us of the other side of the same coin. He says, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You hear that? It's the same image, the flood, right? Being swept away by the flood. Same images in Psalm 90. But then he writes, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, this time that we're living in actually reveals God's love and patience with our world. You might be thinking, how can this possibly display God's love? You are insane. But no, think about it. God doesn't want anyone to perish in their sin. And as a result, he is allowing us to confront our mortality, our finiteness, our weaknesses, our false gods. We can more clearly see our need now for Jesus, and we can point others to him as well. You see, many of us, including me, might be struggling right now to understand what God is up to. What is he doing? Why is he allowing this? But in some of the moments where I can stop and reflect, I'm convinced of the outpouring of grace that's embedded in this season. We need to be reminded that we are dust. This crisis can be used by God to remind us not to cling to the things of this world, but instead to cling to him, which leads us to our last section of the psalm. It's when we turn to God and reflect on his unchanging infinite nature that we move to see our current moment differently. Now that God has reminded us of who we are and who he is, how are we going to respond? Suffering in the life of God's people should always lead us to see the current moment differently. Suffering is allowed by God in order to change us. Hear Moses singing about sin, about mortality and judgment, ends the song with a series of six prayers to God. Moses says, teach us to number our days 
that we might get a heart of wisdom. Because our life on earth is short, because it can send, it can end at any moment, we need the wisdom of God to fill us and guide us so that we'll never waste a moment that's given to us. Moses wants God's people to live wisely as they enter the promised land. He's saying to Israel, here's this land God has given to you, totally undeserved, totally a result of his grace and love. And Moses' deepest desires for them to live and step with the wisdom of God. He knows they're going to experience temptation to be like the nations around them, to follow after idols, to trust in themselves, to believe that they're invulnerable. But his hope is that instead they would live in line with God's wisdom. We are incredibly forgetful people, aren't we? You know how many times a day I forget to apply the truth of the gospel in my life? And as bad as this is, think about how quick we forget and bounce back into old patterns and old routines. As hard as this season is, let me say it would be tragic if we did not arrive on the other side of this experience deeply transformed and wiser because of what God has shown us about ourselves and about him. Let's be so changed by this time that the way we live our lives after it will be unrecognizable to ourselves and to others in the best ways possible. Moses sings, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. This is what we need. As we press into God, he's going to continue to show us that deprived of the many things we enjoy, that we hold dear, we'll actually experience firsthand that God can satisfy us even when all of our comforts and distractions have been taken away from us. This past week, two sisters from our church shared that with so much stripped away from their lives, they've actually seen more clearly the joy and love of knowing God. This is what one sister wrote to me, trying to focus on what's important at the moment, not negotiating morning Bible reading, coffee with God and reading with the kids. These days more moment by moment, surrendering and trusting God. My life seems to be getting more simpler. This has not been my daily experience, but her words remind me, right, that God's promises to us are true, that he alone is able to satisfy us with his love. God is at work right now. His spirit is moving in the world, in the hearts of his people, in the hearts of those who do not yet know him. Let me encourage you guys. I've been able to pray with family members in recent days whom I've never prayed with before. The things being posted on our page, the step challenge competition, the online worship that Edward and Jen have worked so hard to put together, Uriah's devotional. People in Japan have been blessed and encouraged by these things. Think about that. A nation with so few Christians, if the believers being fed by you, the church here in Pennsylvania. The last words of this song proclaim, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This season has taught me anything it's been a powerful reminder that unless God establishes the work of our hands, it's incredibly fragile. People's savings have been lost. My dad's savings, a lifetime of work lost in weeks. Companies that we think are literally made of gold, like Disney, 
are seriously struggling. Movie watching may be completely changed in the days to come. Restaurants may no longer exist the way we understand them. Some of us have worked so hard to build businesses and we've been forced to shut their doors to be safe. It's devastating to see our labor stiff from our hands. I don't say this lightly. Some of us have been deeply hurt by this season and many of us, my family included, could in the coming days be impacted by job loss, by unemployment. How about one of the pillars of our culture, right? The world we think is so unshakable, the work of science, right? Don't we believe science has the answer for everything? And yet even science can't keep up with this thing. Every day we hear something new, right? New symptoms associated with the virus, right? New timelines, new data. Can people get it again? Can people who've healed from it be carriers that pass it on to others, even though they don't get it again themselves? Is this gonna be seasonal? When will we have a vaccine? Will it work? Even if it will, will it be available before the next wave hits us later this year? And I don't share this to scare anyone. I share it because we just don't know. But this changes when we think about our work with total dependence upon God. You see, for how complicated our current situation is, how it's affected our work, our school, the economy, sports, entertainment, there's one whose work can never be thwarted, and that's God. Because when we pause and we clear away the debris, we have a beautiful and actually very elegant and simple love story that we know the ending of. We have a God who's done a work that no one can destroy. And it all began with God and his people, Adam and Eve dwelling with God. And that harmony, that perfect wholeness, that perfect completeness and joy that our first parents had with God was shattered when they broke God's command, when they trusted in themselves and determined to do life apart from him and his law. But God sent his son to restore that relationship. Jesus dwelt among us in the flesh. John said he tabernacled among us. He was with his people, physically present. And in Christ, what we broke with our disobedience was fixed by his obedience. As he perfectly obeyed the commandments, as he fulfilled the law, and as he never gave into sin and temptation. And when he died, all of our misdeeds, all of our sins, all of our failures to keep the law were nailed to the cross. But in Christ's resurrection, we see that truly God established the work of his hands. Death couldn't hold Jesus. He alone had the power to lay down his life and to take it back up again. And it's when we place our faith in his work that we're again made right with God. It's when we cling to Christ that we become united to his plan of salvation and the work we do in him is firm and secure. Our entire world is gonna be changed by this pandemic. In many ways, we don't even know how. But because God is our dwelling place, at the very least, we know what he is doing in us, his people. He's drawing us closer to himself. He's allowing us to participate in what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And he's changing us in the process. He's allowing us to depend more on him and less on ourselves. Let's lean into this. Let us allow God to work in us and through us at this time so that we're ready as our situation changes. 
What's the work of the kingdom? It's to tell others that their sins have been forgiven in Christ, that there's a God who loves them and who's pursuing them, and that no sin they've committed can ever separate them from his love when they place their trust in Jesus. It's to bind up the brokenhearted, those who've lost their homes, their jobs, their loved ones, whether those people are us or the people who don't know Christ. God will establish this work because it's not dependent on us. It's built upon the cornerstone, Christ, whose work on our behalf can never be undone. May this season allow us to hold less tightly to our possessions. May it make us bold to proclaim the gospel to others. Let's be so changed that we desire to be the primary work of our hands, to love God more, to make him known, to see that because we're secure in the love of Christ, because we have a dwelling place that no one can take away, we can live for others. We can show others that love that we've been shown.